This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. Today in the Yonkazine Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Ayal Talor. Dr. Talor is a clinical immunologist with over 25 years of hands-on management experience of clinical research and drug development. He is also the chief scientific officer of CellSky, a company that is developing new immunotherapeutic drugs for the treatment of cancer, autoimmune disease and infectious diseases. And in today's program, we're talking about one of these agents, an investigational drug called leukocyte interleukin, or multikine. The drug is currently in late-stage development and is being investigated as a possible neoadjuvant therapy for patients diagnosed with head and neck cancer and cervical dysplasia. The published results of clinical studies, including a recent concluded phase 3 study with leukocyte interleukin or multikine, are very promising. Patients diagnosed with head and neck cancer treated with this new anti-cancer agent in combination with standard of care versus standard of care alone had an overall survival benefit of 14.1% at 5 years, which exceeded the predefined 10% overall survival benefit set out for the study population as a whole. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncosine Brief. The Oncosine Brief is developed in collaboration with our online journal Oncosine at Oncosine.com, where you can find additional information and the latest news about cancer, cancer diagnosis and treatment, and cancer prevention. For information on how to support the program, visit our website at oncozine.com. And if you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866. And we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. This is the Oncozine Brief. For the latest news about cancer and cancer treatment, visit our online journal, Oncozine, at www.oncozine.com. On the phone is Dr. Eyal Talor to talk with us about leukocyte interleukin or multikine. Dr. Talor, welcome to the Oncozine Brief. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Before we're going to talk about leukocyte interleukin or multikine, can you tell us a little bit more about the group of patients you hope to treat with head and neck cancer in general? Sure, absolutely. So head and neck cancer is the sixth largest cancer in the world. It involves the areas of the oral cavity, the oral pharynx, nasopharynx also, but it's actually a kind of a different disease in many ways, uh, and the um, uh, vocal uh, box, if you will, the area of the the, the larynx. We have concentrated only on the oral cavity, or in within the oral cavity, we looking only at the what's called the anterior oral, or the part that is, uh, if you will, from the point of where your jaw makes a ninety degree angle all the way out to where your lips are, but do not include the lips. So only inside of the oral cavity. It would be the anterior tongue, and I'll explain why in a minute, the floor of the mouth, the cheek, or called buccal mucosa, and the, the area of the soft palate, just after the hard palate, where if you stick your tongue to the roof of your mouth, it's hard, but the back area, just as you are going to swallow, where the uvula is, you know, this little 
uh, round, if you look in the mirror and open your mouth, you could see it hanging up there, uh, kind of like a, I guess for lay people, kind of looks almost like a, like a punch bag for uh, boxers. And this area has a little bit of uh, involvement with HPV. HPV disease or human papilloma virus is involved also in the base of the tongue and in the oral pharynx. And these respond differently to radiation, chemotherapy, et cetera, and they're a little bit easier to treat. Nothing is easy in this disease, believe me. If I had to take your vocal box, we wouldn't be able to speak now. It would be very difficult. These patients, uh, this is a horrific disease. There has not been an improvement in the overall survival in these patients in many decades. The last drug or treatment that was approved specifically for this disease, it is our understanding by the FDA, is that our understanding was methotrexate. I believe that was sometimes in the early 60s, but I'm not quite sure. So despite all improvements, recent improvements in cancer treatment, as well as in head and neck, most treatments really are intended only for the population that could not undergo surgery, meaning resection of the tumor, non-resectable disease, or patients who had tried and failed everything else, basically, and are now recurrent metastatic. So they have recurred their disease, they failed their initial treatment, and recurred the disease. Multikine is different. This is an immunotherapy that is given in a neoadjuvant setting, meaning it is given right after you're diagnosed and before the first treatment that these patients get. Another reason why to be able to do this study globally is because there is one type of standard of care treatment for this population. It's based on two studies that were done and published in around 2004 in the New England Journal of Medicine. They were done by the RTOG or the Radiation Oncology Cooperative Group and the EORTC, which is the equivalent in Europe. These two studies have shown that when patients were randomized after surgery or randomized to surgery and radiotherapy, surgery and radiochemotherapy, the patients in the radiochemotherapy did a little bit better from a survival perspective point of view, both three and five years. But it was only statistically significant in the population that was studied in Europe, the U.S. population, even though the curves showed some improvement visually, it was not statistically significant. And based on that, this is the current standard of care until today without improvement. So these patients, this is considered by the NCCN guideline an intent to cure treatment, meaning if you walk in the door and you have an advanced disease, an advanced uh, primary disease, meaning you've come already in an advanced stage, and I'll get into that in a moment, you get surgery. And as a result of the surgery, if there are certain phenotypes for the uh, surgery by pathology, as is determined by pathology, such as positive margins or multiple clinically involved lymph nodes, perineural or perivascular invasion, and various others, you will then get the chemoradiotherapy. The chemoradiotherapy is prescribed. It's cisplatin, a very toxic drug, has a lot of toxic nephrotoxicity or kidney toxicity. Most patients cannot get the full dose of it. Some patients in that study that I said actually died 
from the administration of the combined radiochemotherapy. So it is not something that you're relishing to get, and it is difficult. From a patient perspective point of view, it's a very difficult disease. Think of your mouth. If you had floor of the mouth, maybe you had some bone mandible, uh, you know, the lower jaw involvement. I'd have to take some of this off, maybe do some grafting, which might or might not take. You would have other issues of swallowing, talking, breathing. This is a very, very, very disfiguring uh, disease. The um, suicide rate in these patients is much higher than in the general population. It takes your dignity away, takes your, your, your self-being awareness away, and it is a very difficult disease to live with. And so anything that we could do in this disease to improve the outcome for these patients is a welcome outcome, particularly if you can do that without imparting any further toxicity to an already very toxic and difficult regimen for the patients. And basically, that's what Multicon has done. Let's take a short break, and then we're back with Dr. Yal Talor, a clinical immunologist and chief scientific officer of CellSky. Are you 45 or older? Then it's time to get screened for colon cancer. Most health insurance plans cover screening, which can prevent colorectal cancer or find it at an early stage. Talk to your doctor to learn more about screening options. This message is brought to you by Oncozine. This is the Oncozine Brief with Peter Hoffland. Welcome back. In today's episode of the Oncozine Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Ayal Talor, a clinical immunologist and chief scientific officer of CellSky. Now, as you've mentioned, surgery is in many cases not an option. Is that because such an intervention would be close to very sensitive areas in the head and neck area that need to be spared, and surgery would do more damage than anything else? Yes, there are, of course, other areas that have to be spared, and sometimes you cannot do that if your carotid is highly involved. Other type of neural areas, which may have to be resected because they're involved, or you cannot you know, closely resect it and leave some tumor behind because otherwise somebody would be totally paralyzed and maybe their jaw would just hang open all the time because you wouldn't be able to do, to do that. And I mean, there are there are multiple complications for that. We concentrated, and I probably didn't even say that at the beginning, but we concentrated on the squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck. Squamous cell carcinoma represents 90%, roughly, give or take, of all head and neck cancer patients. Of those cancer patients, when you come in early stage of disease, stage one, stage two disease, for instance, lip is almost invariably curable. If it's on your outside of your lip or even inside of your lip, if you remove that, perhaps with some just radiotherapy, the cure rate is extremely high. But unfortunately, 66% or two-thirds of the patients come in what's called the advanced primary, meaning the very first time they walked into the doctor's office, they were already in the advanced primary disease stage, meaning they're at least stage three and or four, stage four disease. Now, 
That is done through what's called the AJCC or the American Joint Cancer Commission that determines what combination between the tumor size and the number of lymph nodes that are clinically involved corresponds to the actual tumor stage, if you will. So you could have a small tumor, let's say T1, there is T1, T2, T3, T4. As you go higher with the T number, the stage increases, even without lymph nodes. If you are T1 and T2 and have zero lymph nodes involved in the area of the tumor or the draining area for the tumor, any lymph nodes that are involved, then you are not the advanced primary disease, your earlier disease. But just being T3, meaning a larger size tumor, without nodes, you're stage three. It being T4, slightly yet larger, and possibly invading other surrounding tissue, you are already stage 4A. And although these new Roman numerals are just one after the other, the disease severity is much greater when you're stage 4, and the chances for cure go down. As you know, you know, I mean, you may have heard people, oh, you know, you're stage 4 disease, well, we're going to do whatever we can, but your chances are much less. The same in this disease, okay? So you could have a T1, which is less than two centimeter tumor, less than half an inch, roughly. With one lymph node involved, you're already stage three. The same tumor with two lymph nodes involved, you're already stage 4A. So that's what makes this disease so difficult, both for the patients from a curative perspective point of view and from the physician trying to impart that intended cure for the patient. When you look at advances made in the treatment of cancer in general, there has been a tremendous growth in the understanding of the biology of cancer. As a result, there has been much progress made in developing new treatment options leading to a greater overall survival for many patients. But in head and neck cancer, these advantages are not always very clear, right? There were advances in the treatment, but they did not result in an impact on the overall survival of these patients. For example, many places nowadays use robotic surgery in order to be able to do these complex and complicated surgeries. Without that, sometimes these surgeries took 12 to 14 hours, depending on the complexity of it, and with multiple different disciplines, uh, including vascular surgeons and possibly neurosurgeons, to be able to connect all of those other things, once you've resected a large, you can imagine if I took a very large portion of your, of your face off, it creates a lot of problems, uh, least of which there is a big hole that has to be closed, right? There are flaps that have to be created in order to do that. Otherwise, you just simply have a hole. That doesn't work. If you're going to drink something, it's going to come right out. If it was, let's say, floor of the mouth, right? And I have to take everything out. You have to close it up. Uh, that creates a lot of various adhesions, various problems things that are very problematic. So you can do a better surgery, if you will, with robotic surgery, but that didn't result in increase in the overall survival of these patients. So yes, there have been advances in the treatment, but they did not result in improvement for the outcome, the clinical outcome of these patients. Right. But that may all change if leukocyte interleukin or multikine is approved. 
but at this time, this drug is still an investigational agent and is not approved by the Food and Drug Administration or any other regulatory agencies around the globe. However, in clinical trials with patients with head and neck cancer, you have seen a significant survival benefit of over 14% over five years. That is truly remarkable. Now, to help us understand how this is possible, can you tell me a little bit more about leukocyte interleukin or multikine and what makes this drug so unique? Okay, what is multikine? Multikine is a complex biologic. It contains about 14 different components to it, all of which are cytokines. Cytokines are the mediators of the immune response, both regulatory-wise as well as effector-wise. Some of these cytokines have both dual uh, activity, if you will. Some of those, you mentioned IL-2, of course, there are others as well. Uh, I don't think that we need to go through the list. I will just group them in the different families that are there. There are tumorocidal and tumorostatic type of cytokines. Example of one of those is TNF-alpha, for instance. There are lipoproliferatives, such as IL-2, okay? And there are chemotactic, such as IL-6 or GMCSF, which is important in bringing both growing cells, but also bringing, you see some of those have dual activity, but bringing uh, neutrophils, uh, different cells of the immune system into the site and so forth. What I think is most critical and important about multi-kind to understand is that it acts on multiple levels of the immune response as it is developing innately in your body, in my body, in somebody else's body, specific to their tumor. We do not impart or we do not select tumor antigens. These are, these are, are proteins on a cell surface that are specific or unique to a certain tumor, and their level of expression may be unique to each individual, and they're not necessarily at the same level by all because the tumor grows, but the tumor eventually is derived from, if you will, in a lay kind of a, a term, uh, cell go uh, amok, go, go array, right? It's your own cell. Well, it has your own genetics. Your genetics and mine are different. And yes, it will grow at a different rate but it's in you and in me, and there are going to be all kinds of different things that are going to be different. So if I selected a unique antigen, of course, people do that because some of those appear at a large proportion in all, in all tumors. But it doesn't mean that this is always the best target. So what we decided to do was to say, your body is going to present the target and your body under pressure uh, the tumor in your body under pressure may change its target, right? It may express different antigens, the, the different, different level. While it expresses antigen one today, you know, a week later, it may express only antigen two. And antigen one will be sequestered or, or quiescent. And if I develop an immune response against one and I'm faced with two, it's like having the wrong key for the correct lock. In order to be able to solve this problem, we decided that what we're going to do is we're going to teach the immune response how to respond to your own and changing tumor. And that's why we're giving multikine, not intravenously, because, of course, you've heard before with SARS, not this recent one, but the one before, about cytokine storm. You do not want to give these cytokines intravenously. 
that would not be the right way to administer uh, because they're very toxic from that perspective, although they have a relatively short half-life. They could cause various other problems. And so we give it locally. We administer half the daily dose around the oral tumor, and the other half daily we give to the lymphatic chain drainage to that particular tumor, ipsilateral, meaning the same size of where the oral, primary oral tumor exists. An example, if you had an oral tumor in your left cheek, we would inject kind of into the muscle area behind your ear and get into sternoclavical mastoid, but that doesn't really matter. Uh, uh, in, in the adjacent area, because this is anatomically where these antigens, which will get presented by dendritic cells and macrophages, cell monocytes, so on, into the lymphatic, and then from the lymph in the lymphatic, T cells will come from the periphery, get educated. These are naive T cells that get educated to this particular antigen. Then there are lymphoproliferatives, which will make them proliferate, and there are chemotactic, which will bring them back to the tumor site. So they could then change the tumor microenvironment and kill the tumor. So I now kind of taken you through the whole story of how what multikine is, how multikine works, how we give it, and you know we can discuss why we think it works. Let's take a short break and then we're back with Dr. Yalta Lora, clinical immunologist and chief scientific officer of CellSky. Sarcoma. Odds are you've never heard that word before. For the 40 people diagnosed with sarcoma every day, it is a life-changing word because sarcoma is cancer. Through awareness, advocacy, and research, the Sarcoma Foundation of America is bringing hope to the families whose lives have been turned upside down by a cancer they had never heard of until diagnosis. Please join us in the fight to find the cure for sarcoma. For more information on the work of the Sarcoma Foundation of America, go to curesarcoma.org. This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. In today's episode of the Yonkazine Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Ayal Talor, a clinical immunologist and chief scientific officer of CellSky. If I understand correctly, in many cases, new therapies, as you just explained, are being developed that focus on a particular target on a particular cancer cell. But what you are doing with leukocyte into leukine and multikine is that you're not targeting a specific target on a particular cancer cell, but you're actually teaching the immune system to find and kill cancer cells, right? Right, that is correct, because if you have a target that changes, and we know that tumor under stress will change the expression of tumor antigens on the tumor surface, it's one way, think about it uh, as if it is the... Uh, the Harry Potter cloak, the invisible cloak, right? The tumor tries to escape the immune system, right? And it's invariably quite successful. Otherwise, you know, when I started saying about 35 years ago, we should do immunotherapy, people kind of thought that I was maybe hallucinating something or whatever it is. You know, they didn't really believe that that was possible because, of course, there is an immune response against the tumor, but the tumor appears to grow 
in spite of the immune response being there. Later on, you know, others and so forth, you know, they got Nobel Prize for it, of course. Dr. Ellis, for instance, found out certain switches on and off, if you will, of the immune response by the tumor. And others in Japan, right, uh, found out uh, about uh, checkpoint inhibitors and so forth and various other things. The tumor tries to throw at the immune response. It's kind of like, you know, throwing something in your spokes of your wheel as you're driving very fast, you're going to crash. And so that we figured out that, at least to us, the right approach, there is no right or wrong approach, um, or a better approach, perhaps, is instead of trying to figure out what will happen in the future from a tumor antigen or, or marker, if you will, expression that the immune response can go against, might be a better way to try to support and help teach the immune response to accommodate and change as the tumor changes its cloak, if you will. And therefore, you can have a long-term robust because you can have a response against multiple different antigens, not just one. And you could have that sustainable or durable over a long time. And in fact, that's what we found out in the phase three clinical study. The response was robust and was durable. And this was a phase three study, correct? Yes, this was a phase three study, yes. Your study, which was completed earlier this year, was a randomized open-label study. And the study results are very interesting. Tell me a little bit more about the study and the study design. Certainly, certainly. So... The study is rather complex, but the design is very simple. In fact, what we did was the current standard of care, which I alluded to before, uh, is now, uh, still is, since 2004, uh, and these two studies are listed in, if you will, and referenced by the NCCN guidelines. The NCCN guidelines, NCCN stands for the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. There are a number of physicians, about 20, 24, or something like that, perhaps even more, maybe 30 or so, that come together every year to review and produce a document which becomes like a, like a guide, okay? This is the, the NCCN guidelines. It becomes a guide for the treatment of the various types, conditions, and so forth of patients with head and neck cancer, okay? So although this is a U.S.-based, and document, it actually is used and adhered to around the world, which is why we had, there is nothing easy in this disease, believe me, but why it was relatively easy to gain acceptance for the study, because every patient in a study, irrespective if they were randomized to receive multicon before or not, they received the standard of care. What is the standard of care, which is, as I said before, the intent to cure, although at least 50%, sometimes more, of these patients do not benefit from this intent to cure. They're not cured. And the other one may recur later on, et cetera, et cetera. But that's why it's a dire, unmet medical need until today. You intend to cure all, but, uh, you know, at best you can do is maybe 50% or less, depending on what databases you look at. What does this current standard of care, first-line standard of care today, currently, contains? 
everybody gets surgery. The surgery is done with an intent to cure, try to remove all the tumor and any clinically involved lymph nodes. Then the pathologist comes over and takes a look at these. And then if you have certain, uh, and, I, and I kind of alluded to some of those, if you have certain type of, of positive margins or great two or more clinically involved lymph nodes, level four or five, we didn't discuss what that is. This is as far as you can get. Level four is near your clavicle. Level five is kind of, you know, in a muscle area behind your ear. So furthest away from the, from the mouth, any extra capsule or spread, meaning it passed outside of the lymph nodes, any perineural, perivascular invasion, and others, you then get or get to go to receive concurrent radiochemotherapy. You're considered as a higher risk for recurrence, and therefore you receive that. You get between 60 and 70 gray. This is a, a measure of, of radiation. Uh, and you get it between 30 and 35 fraction, which means over six to seven weeks, which means you receive about two gray a day. We standardized everything in a study to ensure that all the study centers around the world that participated in that, and we had 78 different centers on three continents that at least accrued and treated one patient or more. Many of them treated more than that, of course. We had 928 patients totally. But from the standard of care perspective point of view, that's what you get. And on day one of week one, week four, and week seven, you day one of each of those weeks of radiotherapy, you would receive also cisplatin. This is a platinum-based therapy, which is extremely toxic. The dose is given. It's a given. It's 100 milligram per meter squared. Uh, that is calculated in a certain type of formula, which we provided to everybody to ensure. And in a study, we sourced all of this centrally. It had to have at least a USP or US pharmacopoeia grade, EU or European pharmacopoeia grade, EU, EP or BP, British pharmacopoeia grade. It had to be at least the source of this had to have the same and all of this, the same was sent to all the centers around the world back even to the United States and Canada and Europe and everywhere in order so we don't have what's considered a differential toxicity. So we tried to control absolutely everything. The radiotherapy was controlled through MD Anderson. MD Anderson, they control their radiation uh, group, the quality assurance radiation group controls every or, or most of, of those uh, major studies around the world, including these studies that are performed by the Radiation Oncology Cooperative Group or the RTOG, remember? These are the ones that did the study to create that standard of care and the EURTC. So they are the ones who control this for us around the world. In fact, I'm quite proud that we have done this because some countries couldn't participate because they just, the radiation therapy in these countries, I won't mention what they are, but were not up to par. They are not able to meet the minimum requirement and pass qualification of the ability to do that, and therefore, uh, or some studies, some centers, even the country as a whole, and maybe a couple of centers that could do that, that only these centers that could do that participated in a study. So we have, and, and, and they checked before and they checked after to ensure that the patients received what the protocol prescribed. So from the standard of care perspective point of view, after surgery, 
if you're at this high risk, which ends up being, and the NCCN guidelines says that to you, about from the advanced primary disease patients, of course, because this is the only population we looked at, the stage 3 and 4A patients. These were the ones who received chemoradiotherapy concurrent at about 60% of all the patients. So the remainder, roughly about 40%, which are at the lower risk for recurrence because they don't have any of these features, if you will, after surgery, receive only radiotherapy. Same radiotherapy, 60 to 70 grade total, 30 to 35 fractions over 6 to 7 weeks. They do not receive concurrent chemo radiotherapy with their radiotherapy. So basically, everybody gets standard of care in this study, right? So you get surgery plus radiotherapy or surgery plus concurrent chemo radiotherapy. We randomized patients who were enrolled and met the inclusion criteria were then randomized to three groups. Group one received multi-kind plus what we term CIZ, I'll explain in a minute. Group two received just multi-kind, no CIZ. And group three went directly, didn't receive anything before surgery and went directly to surgery and then after surgery received either radiotherapy or chemotherapy. Every group did the same thing after surgery. It wasn't like just the control group did that, right? It's just that they didn't get multi-kind before. What is CIZ? CIZ is cyclophosphamide, indomethacin, and zinc multivitamins. Most importantly, the cyclophosphamide, and there is a lot of data and a lot of, uh, this has been done many, many years ago here in the United States by Dr. Mastrangelo and Dr. Bird, that they have uh, initially developed that, showing that if you give that at that low non-chemotherapeutic level one time, a very tight situation. If you give it about three days, it has to be three days, not one day before, not two days, but five days before. Three days before you give any immunomodulatory agent, like IL-1. You talked about aldeslucan at the beginning. That would enhance the immunomodulatory activity of that particular agent. It does the same thing with multikines. Let's take a short break, and then we're back with Dr. Yal Talor, a clinical immunologist and chief scientific officer of CellSky. Clinical trials allow researchers to introduce new hope by providing participants access to cutting-edge and potentially life-saving treatments. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinicaltrials to learn more. Together, we can stand up for all of us. This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. In today's episode of the Yonkazine Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Ayal Talor, a clinical immunologist and chief scientific officer of CellSky. What I didn't tell you before, but I said change some of the tumor microenvironment, is that we see that with multikine, and we've published on that before in 2003, at the laryngoscope in 2005 in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, we, we showed that we have a change in the tumor microenvironment in favor of the helper CD4, helper T cells, as opposed to CD8 cells. There are as many CD8s as before, but we, give, we get more CD4s in there. How do we accomplish that? Because IL-2, for instance, just use that as an example, doesn't know how to differentiate 
and proliferate only one versus the other. That's where cyclophosphamide comes into place. If you will, think about it as if it is a 100-meter dash and half of your competitors are CD8 and the others are CD4. And you want to give the CD4 an advantage. The only way to do that, if everybody runs at the same speed, is to hold back the CD8 runners, right? Those CD8s. So then you get an advantage for the CD4. That's what cyclophosphamide does. It holds back the regulatory type T cells because that's part of what the tumor does. It's very complicated. But what the tumor does is it creates more regulatory type cells in a tumor microenvironment, which tamps it down the natural immune response, and therefore you don't have an immune response against the tumor, and you can kill the tumor. So the tumor has a lot of tools in its tool shed to be able to keep itself alive against and in spite of having an immune response there. So, which is what partly checkpoint inhibitors will do, right? But checkpoint inhibitors, unlike multikine and monoclonal antibodies, unlike multikine, do not create a de novo immune response. We do. And we change the tumor microenvironment. As I said, we've published on this before. We've shown that these are these cells, there's many cells of them, many of those. And not only that, but with multikine, we've shown with multikine and CIZ in phase two, we have shown that we can, and I cannot discuss about this in phase three because it's not public in the public domain yet, but we have shown that in the same type of a situation where we give multikind and we give the standard of care, we actually are able in three weeks, and as is shown at the time of surgery when they remove that, in three weeks before surgery, to have what's called complete responders and partial responders, which means multikind alone and the immune response alone vigorously is able to destroy the tumor, not because people think about it in size. It's not necessarily size is not quite the question. The question is that sausage that you've just removed, which is a tumor, sliced nose to tail, is there any alive tumor cell in it? This was done in a blinded manner in phase two and also now in phase three. And in phase two, we were able to show that in some cases, we've had no tumor cell alive in that mass that was removed by surgery. And in some cases, that actually disappeared, even in three weeks. In other cases, only half or so of the tumor died. Better to fight an enemy that half its soldiers are incapacitated or not alive than the full, the full measure. So I think that was very useful. The reason why we put group two in there with no CIZ was because when we, by the way, we vetted this trial design and with the FDA and the Canadian regulators, as well as other regulators, which accepted it, 23 other regulators around the world, or the FDA and 23 other regulators, so 24 regulators accepted this study and the study design and agreed to all the rationale behind that. But before we even started, the FDA accepted this design, and we had discussions with them about this. And they, they asked that we put group two, multicon without SIDS. I just realized I didn't tell you about indomethacine. Indomethacin is, is given and it does a similar thing, if you will, as I discussed for T cells, but for macrophages and monocytes, okay? These are the cells that the other cells of the immune system, some of those present antigens and do other things, et cetera, et cetera. There are some different types there, and you want a certain type, not the other. Uh, and so that's what indomethacin does. 
So the FDA asked for 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 just multi-kind because these two uh, components of the CIZ are not without toxicity. And they said, well, if you do that, how will we know, even though we've seen in phase two that there is no real toxicity to start with, if you will, for multi-kind, how will we really know that the toxicity of, what is the toxicity of multi-kind if it exists? And so that's why we made a smaller group, and they agreed, with just multi-kind. And also they said, well, maybe multi-kind works by itself. Without it, I can tell you that the group one works better than group two. So we were right. The CIZ is correct. It's needed there for a better better job. And no, we have not seen any toxicity. We've discussed this publicly. It's safe or as safe as we can. Uh, uh, of course, safety is only impacted by the FDA and other regulatory agencies, so we cannot call it safe. But we know that it doesn't uh, doesn't have any safety issues. There were none that were reported directly uh, involved in multi-kind. Now, based on the results you've observed with leukocyte interleukin, or as you call it, multikine, are you going to seek regulatory approval from the FDA and other regulatory authorities around the world? Yes, absolutely. In fact, we've actually said that in a, in a press release. We believe, and we've talked with a number of KOLs already, our key opinion leaders in the field, both uh, surgeons as well as uh, radiotherapists and radiologists, as well as chemotherapists, And they all are in agreement that this is really a very significant finding clinically, not just statistically, which it is statistically significant, but but very, very impactful for this patient population. And, and yes, it's true that we were not able to achieve it in the complete population, but we were able to achieve that. And there are some reasons for why that is not, we haven't discussed this, but there are some, some very good reasons, timing and so forth of when this is given, et cetera, and as to why it probably shouldn't work so well in the concurrent chemo radiotherapy. And so, as I said uh, in a call that we had with the shareholders, suffice it to say that whatever Multicon giveth, chemotherapy taketh away immunologically. So that's probably one of the reasons why that, that didn't work so well in that group. And, and when you combine the two groups with one that works very well and one that doesn't work well, then you get some zero, basically, which is kind of what, what we saw. There was, no, there was no effect in a combined group. But think about it. This is what the standard of care is, right? So you get surgery, even in the real world. Forget about multi-kind, right? You get surgery and radiotherapy only. You're it. You're not going to get chemotherapy. Or you get surgery, and already, right away, you get concurrent chemoradiotherapy. You'll never just get radiotherapy. Unless clinically you have, I don't know, kidney, near, near kidney failure, you might not be able to get other stuff either. But, you know, and so you can't get cisplatin, you know. So, you know, you don't have proper creatinine clearance, you know, less than 40 ml per minute. You cannot get cisplatin. It, you have to stop it. Even after hydration for a couple of days, you still cannot do that. Well, you still cannot get it. But this has to do with comorbidities, with other problems that you have that are not related specifically to the disease. It's just that that's, you know, how a patient is, you know. So first do no harm. I'm not, yeah, I'm not going to give you, you know, chemo radiotherapy and kill you, right? You're supposed to do first do no harm. So that's what happens, okay, in real life. But you were destined to this group. So, so it is basically a straight line. It either curves to one direction or curves to the other direction. But it's, that's how it is. So with a multi-kind surgery and radiotherapy, we saw fantastic results. 
And everybody says these are impactful, clinically significant, very important. One of them even said, you know, we've been, I asked, how do you think that the scientific and, and medical community are going to see that? Because we've been waiting for this for many years. The development of this new therapeutic option is very interesting and hopefully it will indeed lead to a new therapeutic option for people suffering from this disease. But let me ask you this. On average, how many people are being diagnosed with this type of cancer? There are about nine, about 890,000 patients diagnosed per year worldwide with squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck. Of those, 90% are squamous cell carcinoma. Sorry, uh, these are just head and neck. 66 are advanced primary, and 40% uh, of the 66 will receive, roughly, will receive only the radiotherapy after surgery. That amounts to about 211,000 patients annually globally. And if only 14% of those benefit five years, or just to tell you what it would mean, it would mean another 29,500 patients alive five years and otherwise would not have received multikine plus CIZ before surgery followed by radiotherapy. That's what it means. Now, that is very impactful. And with that note about the survival benefit, thank you so much, Dr. Yaltalor, for taking time in talking with us in the Ongas in Brief. Thank you so much. And uh, whenever we have more results to share, I'll be happy to be on your, on your show again. In today's episode of the Onkis in Brief, I spoke with Dr. Ayal Talor. Dr. Talor is a clinical immunologist with over 25 years of hands-on management experience of clinical research and drug development. He is also the chief scientific officer of CellSky, a company that is developing new immunotherapeutic drugs for the treatment of cancer, autoimmune disease and infectious diseases. And in today's program, we spoke about one of these agents, an investigational drug called leukocyte interleukin or multikine. The drug has not yet been approved by the Food and Drug Administration or by any other regulatory agency around the world. And while the published results of the clinical trials with leukocyte interleukin or multikine are indeed very promising, no definite conclusions can be drawn from the early phase clinical trial data summarized in this program. Additional research is required and the results of early-phase clinical trials must be confirmed in well-controlled late-stage phase 3 clinical trials of this investigational therapy that are currently in progress. For more information about leukocyte interleukin or multikine and CellSky, please visit the company's website at cell-sky.com. For us here at Yonkers in Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners, sponsors and advertisers, for your ongoing support. Your support makes it possible that you can hear this program via PRX Public Radio Exchange and in the United Kingdom and mainland Europe via UK Health Radio. You can also download our program via podcast and streaming media, including iTunes and Spotify. For more information about supporting the Ongazine Brief, go to ongazine at ongazine.com. If you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866. And we will make sure that you will receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. Thank you all. And thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brief.
Oncozine Brief is a global medical educational service from the publishers of Oncozine and ADC Review, the journal of antibody drug conjugates. Support for the Oncozine Brief comes from our commercial underwriters and advertisers and the listeners to this station. For more information about advertising, underwriting, and sponsoring options, visit Oncozine at www.oncozine.com forward slash podcasts. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine-related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content in this program is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice and guidance. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.